welcome everybody. Uh, we're having an interesting room tonight for you, I believe, about autonomy FUD. Um, we have uh, with us Warren Redlick, Sawyer Merritt, Omar Kazi, James Dauma, and Emmett Peppers. None of them need any introductions. You all know them. If you don't, you can Google them. <laughs> they're, they're on social media everywhere. Um, a little bit about the background. So autonomy FUD, what are we talking about? We're talking about autonomous vehicles, of course, and FUD being an acronym for fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And there's been a lot of that uh, for a while uh, concerning especially Tesla and their full self-driving beta program. And basically, recently, there was a podcast with... Um, a savvy communicator named uh, Beth Kindig, and she was basically saying some stuff that made my skin crawl, and I think some of in the room here as well. And something happened also to Warren. Uh, he, he got the news recently, and he made a video about it. So I basically reached out and decided, yeah, we need to fight a little bit of FUD tonight. And they all agreed. And yeah, so let's kick it off. Emmett, I think you're the first one who interacted with uh, that podcast from Beth Kindig. And can you tell us a little bit of context? Yes. <clears throat> yes. Uh, so, um, you know, my, my uh, business is Good Show Investment Management. My partner and I, Matt, uh, do like a weekly podcast live and take questions from people. And someone, I think, asked us a question about like, have you looked into Beth Kindig's uh, comments on Roblox and Tesla? Those are like two stocks we talk about a lot. And um, so I was curious and I uh, didn't, hadn't heard of her name before, um, you know, and uh, I Googled her and I think I, I, or I clicked on the link for the podcast he was referencing. He, I think he, the person referenced it on Twitter or something. And I listened to it, you know, um, and she sounded super smart on a lot of, in a lot of things. Like uh, the first half of the podcast, I was listening to her talk about like NVIDIA and the chips and like, these are things I'm not an expert on. You know, these are things I know a little bit about, but not more, not much more than the average person. And certainly not as much as an expert on, on some of those topics she was talking about technology related. And then it transitioned to, to um, Tesla <clears throat> and you know, there's people more, you know, that have more expertise than me on individual things within Tesla. But I feel like overall, I know a lot more than most people on, you know, Tesla's um, elements that make it up. It's a huge conglomerate of technologies and businesses, as we know. And um, she started talking about full self-driving and that it needs 5G connectivity for edge case computing to work so it could be fully autonomous. And it just like, set me off. And I was like, this is so wrong. This is crazy talk. I mean, I said, and she's talking such a matter of fact way. Like she's not talking like she's unsure. She's talking like she's very sure of it, which really I think was what bothered me. And so uh, I realized that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, so-called financial professionals who are, you know, sort of like generalists on a lot of things. And maybe that's what they're paid to be. And they're just being fed information from other people that maybe don't know what they're talking about half the time. And, so you just can't trust a lot of people on this stuff. And so I think I tweeted it out or, and then Warren kind of retweeted this, the clip and it just kind of snowballed from there. Yeah. So, so just to, to, to reiterate what this, the argument was, was basically uh, like full self-driving cannot happen 
until 5G is implemented everywhere because cars cannot do the computing on board the car because that will drain the battery. So they need actually to offload and they can't offload to the mm-hmm. cloud because those milliseconds, that extra that it would take to go to the cloud would decrease the reaction times of the vehicle. So you basically need some sort of edge computing on the side of the roads where like the decisions can be made for the cars and yeah. transmitted back to the car for them to react. Uh, so, yeah. And she was talking about Tesla specifically too. She wasn't talking about, you know, autonomous cars altogether. And she started off kind of like with a quirky comment, like she's been asked before, like, I don't know, have you driven in a robo taxi last year? Like kind of making fun of Elon's comments about having robo taxi, you know, like when the guy asked it. So it, she, t- she started off like very quirk, like, like she was very smart on the topic. And then she went into that and I was like, what? She is way off on Tesla's autonomy. Like it just was nuts. Yeah. Yeah, what do you make of this, James? Like, do you have like insights whether why they're doing this? So, I actually, um, so I'm really interested in the tech, and that's what I spend my time on. I don't tend to follow a lot of these human controversies that that spark. So her contention was that it sounds like from this context, like Emmett saying that her contention was that you can't possibly put enough compute in a car to do this. So the compute has to be somewhere else, and if it's going to be somewhere else and still useful to the car. It has to be close by and it has to have a really, really high speed connection to the car. Otherwise, you're not going to have enough bandwidth or the latency will be too long. Is that is that what she was saying, Emmett? Or Alex, do you? you yeah. Alex, is that, was that her position? Yeah. I think in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's, that's okay, exactly so it. And just... That, I mean, so you can look at this from the standpoint of there are no extant robo taxis. There's no extant system, which is level five. Uh, and and then you can ask the question, well, why don't we have something right now? And I guess one, one approach you could say is, well, the sensors aren't good enough. Another thing you could say is, well, the computers aren't good enough. Another thing you could say is, well, the software is just not ready. And um, people in the space will disagree about these things. And uh, when they... You know, people who make forecasts about when this stuff is going to be available and what it's going to take to get there are generally extrapolating from their own personal experience, right? Most of these people are not looking at, they're not so deeply embedded in the space that they have these metrics that they know are reliable from first principles that they've tracked over a long time and where they know exactly where it's got to get to in order for the system to achieve some particular capability. Uh, people in the space talking about self-driving cars have been wrong forever. Uh, I mean, you, and they're wrong in two different ways. You see people who say it's never, ever going to happen. And that's just wrong. And you see people who uh, who say, well, it's going to happen in two years or five years. And every every significant player in the space who's been around for a few years has been guilty of predicting it was going to happen sooner than it ended up happening. I mean, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, at the end of the day, we don't actually know the exact mix of ingredients that it's going to take to make it work. And all you can really do is you can pick a metric for, you know, how well is the system performing? And you can watch how that metric evolves over time. And, you know, that's what you can do that's data driven. Everything else is opinions. So, you know, if somebody comes out and says, well, my, you know, you, you can't possibly do it with a computer, they're expressing an opinion because there's no first principles analysis that can lead you to the conclusion that it's not possible with a computer. Uh, so how much compute is it likely to take? Well, that's, you know, that's a really interesting question. 
um, you can kind of bound that problem by saying, well, how much compute does, you know, does a human being use to do this problem? Or you can try to look at it from a, from a, you know, kind of a more fundamental, you know, how, how complex is the domain? What does it take to reduce this complexity to something that, you know, that, that becomes tractable for a computer? Those are all super complicated things to do. Um, in reality, what we do is we build a system and we look at what it takes to make it get better. And then we make a guess about how much better it's got to get in order to do the problem. And that's what everybody's done up until now. That's what we're doing right now. That's what Google is doing right now. That's what Tesla is doing right now. And, you know, people extrapolate forward based on reasonable expectations of what the hardware is going to be able to do within the window of time that that they're talking about in order to get to these things. And the amount of compute that's available you know, in the window that we care about, like over the next couple of years that you can put in a car and you can power off a car battery is horrendously more powerful than what anybody is using today on these things. I mean, you know, the algorithms can get quite dramatically more powerful than they are right now without stressing the hardware. So like if I was going to criticize, uh, uh, you know, robo taxis as an unachievable dream, I would not start with the computers, <laughs> right? That. Anyway, so there's my, you know, take on it. Yeah, and I would just say, if I can speak for a second, that it's striking to me. I talked to Jason Torchinsky of Jalopnik. I spoke with, uh, what's the guy's name, Taylor Ogan. I watched this one, Beth Kindig. And what really stands out to me is you have these people who purport to be experts who say Tesla won't succeed because blah, blah, blah. And it becomes very apparent very quickly that they didn't watch Autonomy Day and they didn't watch AI Day. And they, or, and if, if they did watch any of it, they didn't watch all of it, they didn't understand it. They don't understand basic concepts. Like, you know, what, what to us are basic concepts that the computer in the car is what James just referred to uh, earlier as an edge computer or that's an inference chip and the computer at the home office is a training computer. And it's not that you refer back to the home computer to tell you what to do. It's not that the chip in the car refers back to the home computer, all the information, and then waits for instructions on what to do. The training computer trains the chips how to respond to whatever input comes in. And it's so apparent that so many of these critics just literally do not understand what's happening. And that's very frustrating. But if you're going to opine on whether Tesla's safe or not, or you should probably at least listen to what they said in events that were publicly available. Is it, is it that much to ask that people actually listen and, and pay attention to that and try to understand? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think um, it's one thing for them to opine, and but for them to, you know, sound so sure of themselves as they opine, I think is misleading. And just as like a little anecdotal story, my dad, who's a pretty smart guy, he's the first one who told me about like self-driving cars in 2012, like being in the future. And I didn't believe him. I was like, no way. And then Tesla started talking about it. And, you know, he's a very technology centered guy. He even owns a Tesla for the last several years. He doesn't follow the stock or everything about it like I do, but he's knowledgeable. He uses autopilot. So just like as a little anecdotal test, I didn't give him any context, any background. I just pulled up that one minute clip that you had tweeted, Warren, at dinner, like the next night, a family dinner where we had with him. And I was like, hey, dad, would you do me a favor? Just listen to this one minute clip and let me know what you think. And I, he listened to it. 
And at the end, he's like, yeah, I think it, what she says makes a lot of sense. I agree 100%. And I'm like, dad, you failed the test. <laughs> you know. So there's so many people that are like smart that if they don't study the stock and Tesla or whatever, what they're doing with AI day and self-driving, they're just going to believe these people like blindly and be completely misinformed on what Tesla is capable of and their full self-driving. Yeah. So uh, a lot of things we've been hearing for, for years now is basically LiDAR, uh, more sensors, uh, recently 5G edge computing vehicle to everything connectivity. And, uh, we have Omar here with us who's been like, uh, FUD fighting on so many different levels. And he's, he's an actual beta tester right now. So, uh, what, what's your take on, on this whole situation? Is it, is it bad faith, uh, from, from certain people or it's just people that are not in really in the know and then other people exploiting those statements in bad faith. Well, on the subject of this first thing we were talking about with 5g and that kind of thing, I mean, you know, it's kind of silly that we're even talking about this to some extent. It's like talking about the sun going up and, and setting in the evening because people say stupid things about autonomy every day and especially about FSD every day. Otherwise respectable people who have a platform for some reason or another, people do not understand this. Right. And it's, you know, it's, it's something that hasn't been done before. Nobody's ever made a fully driverless car that can work anywhere. And there's many, many people trying to achieve it. And so For some reason, everyone thinks they have an opinion on how a self-driving car should work. Even people who have no expertise, you know, it's, it's kind of like a very sensational thing in the public imagination, like a self-driving car. Is it going to crash? Is it going to kill me? So there's kind of like uh, this appetite for it. But, you know, really, you have people saying wrong things like this all the time that are just so ridiculous, you know, <laughs> you it's not even worth it to try and explain. But I mean, in the case of the 5G thing, if you have the system that's controlling the car and it's not in the car, it's somewhere else, you're essentially relying on a data connection to, to drive the car. And if there's any kind of failure in the data connection, you lose control of the car and potentially crash. So this is very unadvisable from a system design perspective for, you know, in case this should be obvious to people Uh, with a software background, but to others, it may not be. And actually, there are some companies that are controlling their cars with 5G. Like there's a company in Vegas that is, they basically have remote drivers in their call center, and then they send a car to you, and it's quote unquote driverless. There's really kind of a person remote driving it. And then you get it, and you can then rent the car and use it. And then it goes back, you know, quote unquote, autonomously to the to the call center. So there are actually some people trying this, but, you know, no network connection is completely reliable. It's obviously the wrong approach. What you want to do is uh, run all the inference in the car. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, people are going to have to see it to believe it. Um, and, uh, you know, people will say what they're going to say. People are going to say a lot of wrong things. They'll say it's impossible. It's a hundred years away. It's something that feels like magic. Like if you actually pull this off, a self-driving car that can drive anywhere, it's like you've pulled off a magic trick. And that's what I think is going to happen with Tesla. 
with my experience testing FSD beta, when people see this and see it mature beyond where it is today, it's going to be like Tesla pulled off a magic trick. Like they did something that people thought was impossible. And that's going to be really cool to see. We just drove across the country from California to Miami, you know, 2,700 miles. We had about 16 disengagements, most of them being on the city streets FSD beta portion with the Pure Vision autopilot, maybe just one or two or three disengagements at most across the entire country. So this is incredibly powerful software and nobody else has anything like it. Waymo, others, they can't cross the country. Their technology doesn't allow it. But Tesla's put it in real customers' hands. And when people see it, yeah, I got to say that one of her other arguments is that FSD would not be solved by uh, a market leader today, but from some like small private startup that they would actually win autonomy. I don't know what your your, your guys' take is on, on that. Well, the problem with deep learning, at least the conventional approaches to deep learning that we have in our toolbox today, is that it tends to be fairly expensive, right? To train a neural network like autopilot, you need massive, massive GPU clusters, let alone something like Dojo, like a custom designed chip, you need to buy massive amounts of graphics cards from NVIDIA. You need to have massive data collection, right? Think about Tesla's AT&T bill, massive labeling team, right? These are people who are not just ordinary people. They need to have a fair amount of expertise in how to label the data properly. All these things are huge costs that make it difficult for a startup to take up some of the bigger players. Now you do have comma and some others who are trying, but you can take a look at, you know, where they are and where Mobileye and others are. I think it's, it's, it's sorry, go ahead, Warren, go ahead. It's it, it. So we have this interesting event in the recent, uh, up until, uh, up until 2012, the consensus was that was that neural networks didn't work and that deep learning didn't work. And this this is a consensus that was almost universally held in the AI community. And that changed really radically in one day with one really powerful demonstration. And, you know, the external perception of this to, to most of the field, this came out of nowhere. Um, I mean, everybody knew about this and everybody knew the arguments for why it didn't work very well. Now, the arguments were flawed, uh, but they were flawed in ways that people didn't bother to learn about because the, you know, the perception going, you know, back a couple of decades was that it didn't work. And because it didn't work, people didn't study it. So nobody, you know, when it started working, people started looking at it a lot more closely and, and the, you know, people in the field under, you know, a, a substantial number of people in the field started to understand that, that the, the, you know, they were under some misconceptions before. Not everybody has given up on the notion that it doesn't work. But, you know, year after year, um, it kept uh, breaking these new uh, barriers that, you know, I mean, the AlphaGo thing was not, DeepMind didn't pick Go as a challenge problem just randomly. Go was a challenge problem because it was a longstanding contention in the uh, artificial intelligence space that Go as a game was combinatorically insoluble. That is, the techniques that had been used to win computer games prior to that fundamentally couldn't apply to Go. And so it, it, was, this, it was this problem that was held out as an example of something that computers just weren't going to be able to do, that it took something like human intuition in order to play this game. Because 
because you can't solve it with the kinds of techniques that anybody had used in AI up to that point. So DeepMind went out and they went after Go. And what they basically were trying to show in a super general way was that what deep learning was doing was it was letting us do something like what human intuition does, like what, what the field had long understood that you can't, you can't brute force go because it's the problem space is too big. It, you, you can't go after it. So they, they beat that. And then, and that was another thing along with ImageNet where suddenly, uh, you know, we, uh, they were demonstrating that we had this new technique that nobody saw coming that just completely changed the playing field. And, you know, and we're still in an era where there are people who kind of get it and they're getting on board with this idea that this technology has legs and it's really going to do a lot of stuff. And there's still a lot of holdouts that, that are, you know, deeply invested in things outside of what deep learning could do. Anyway, the point of this is that, so now recently we have these, a couple of historical examples of where suddenly out of the, you know, I'm going to say out of the blue, which is not a fair characterization because all these techniques had been worked on for a long time. And then they suddenly crossed a threshold where they were good enough to do something. This is true what they did in AlphaGo. And it was also true of ImageNet, which was the first event that, that brought this stuff in. But people in the field, they look at these and they say, well, why couldn't there be a third one? Why can't there be another you know, discontinuous leap forward? And there are a couple of candidates for great discontinuous leaps forward, which could make uh, training neural networks suddenly dramatically more efficient. So people inside the field can look at this space and say, well, why couldn't it be some newcomer company? And you can look at these things and say, well, look at ImageNet, look at AlphaGo, and you can look at like AlphaFold is also another super groundbreaking. Uh, you know, protein folding is a problem people have been working on for decades. And it's a, it's a really, really important problem. A lot of smart people worked on it for a really long time. Nobody expected deep learning networks to be this, the, you know, the thing that solved this, you know, it's a, I mean, AlphaFold is capable of, uh, for, you know, 98% of the proteins that people look at of, of predicting the shape of that protein to within the measurement that it can be at, uh, that it can be measured by state-of-the-art equipment today. And so that, you know, it's approximately solved in that sense, not for all proteins. And that's another thing that, you know, experts in the field, they didn't expect to see that for 20, maybe 50 years because people worked on it for a really long time. So you can look at all this stuff and you can think, well, maybe there will be, you know, yet another miracle. Maybe reinforcement learning is suddenly going to get dramatically better, or maybe, you know, unsupervised learning or some of those techniques, which we don't know how to do very well today. Maybe next week somebody figures out how to make those go. And that could happen. I mean, Tesla, Tesla has the advantage of they got they got on the, uh, you know, vehicle autonomy uh, uh, bandwagon after all of the other techniques, the, the earlier techniques were sort of had been running out of gas as Google's problem is they're still highly committed to uh, to a set of techniques that don't that aren't fully taking advantage of the latest stuff that we know, there could be something that comes next. However, I'd be shocked if if the if the latest greatest technique you know came out next week, and and uh, and and two months later Elon didn't say okay we're throwing all this stuff away we're going to do the new thing right that 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 they won't make the mistake that Google made of of being unwilling to uh, walk away from what they invested a lot in which turns out not to be the way that it's going to go so that could happen. It's, it's less likely to happen 
than I think a lot of people might be hoping for. Like for instance, comma, comma is very invested in a this totally valid idea that there's a different technique called it's kind of it's another thing that that um, uh, that DeepMind developed, which is this algorithm called Mu Zero. Mu Zero is the 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 underlying algorithm that did AlphaGo taken to its kind of logical conclusion. Uh, it's, it's really inefficient right now. It takes phenomenal amounts of data, but we, there's no information theoretic reason why it couldn't be a lot better. And some people are thinking, well, you know, we're just one breakthrough away from that happening, except for the fact that there are a lot of smart people who've looked at it and uh, who've worked on it really hard and none of the people working on it expect it to suddenly get dramatically better. So I would discount that for now. All these things are possible. None of them are likely. I, I get the feeling that you're saying that until there's like a trailblazer that actually uh, hits on uh, something successful, the the space right now, the experts in the space are all like in agreement with each other, what is possible, what's not possible. And that um, Tesla, since we're talking about FSD being this huge, massive problem to solve, if they get to basically solve it, it'll be an aha moment for the the whole community, the machine learning, AI, neural net community, they'll all go see, oh my God, and it'll, it'll open a whole new uh, universe uh, to, to their uh, way of. You're saying if Tesla solves it, it'll be a big surprise to the people. Yes, and they'll actually start believing that other things might be also possible because somebody else has achieved it, much like. Well, I would say Kama already does believe that. Kama is, you know, to George Hotz to some extent, he looks at what DeepMind did and he looks at these other, I mean, we've had a bunch of years now where really surprising things happen. It, the the field, the deep learning field, like I would, I think it is not unreasonable to say that every year for seven years, so much happened in the ensuing year that if you went back 12 months and you asked most people in the field, they would not believe what was going to happen in the next year. Like literally every year since, since then, we've had this. We, we've had these events occur where something really surprising happened. That's not the same thing as anything is possible. It means a lot of the things that have happened are I'm going to call them low hanging fruit in the sense that as soon as deep as soon as neural networks started working, suddenly there was this new approach to attack a whole wide range of problems because it's a very flexible technique that can be applied to a lot of different uh, problems. And up until now, it's been this free for all with people kind of running around just applying this technique to all of these uh, problems, some small problems, some really big problems, and having varying degrees of success. That's different from a fundamental breakthrough. They're basically leveraging a breakthrough that we all already had. Now, what comma needs, uh, would be more, you know, what comma would need for Mu Zero to suddenly become dramatically more sample efficient, which is its biggest problem is that it takes too much compute. Like there aren't enough computers in the world to make Mu Zero solve the self-driving problem today. But, you know, uh, year by year, it becomes a more tractable problem because the techniques improve. I mean, the computers get faster, but they're not getting faster nearly at a quick enough pace. The problem itself is getting is getting easier because people are learning more and more tricks. But that's different from 
learning a new trick and getting 20% better is different from developing a fundamental new understanding where a whole bunch of things that you had no idea how to do before suddenly become possible. With Mu Zero, it's not a question of scale. They need something more fundamental than that to make it work. And so that's why I would I would argue that that George Hotz is probably wrong because we're probably not going to see that dramatic increase in efficiency. Tesla, on the other hand, is building what they're building almost entirely upon techniques that are known to work and we know how well they're working. And Carpathy's approach has been, he, I mean, uh, up until very recently, so I'm looking at the neural networks, I haven't seen uh, Tesla try to do really novel things. I mean, every single ingredient that they put into the FSD system that I have been able to identify to date is something where somebody else figured out how to work and basically ironed out the details. Tesla took that new technique they stuck it in in their network and then they cranked it up to industrial scale and they took advantage of it. So they're looking at all of these researchers and all of these industrial labs and whatnot that are investigating how these things work. And they're cherry picking the best techniques from the best labs and integrating them. They're not doing research on their own. They're doing development. Because of that, they just they don't focus on trying to explore unexplored territory. What they're doing is they're scaling up stuff that's known to work. And if I look at that technique, I have to, you know, it's a matter of scale. I mean, they've already looked at this stuff and I agree with the assessment that the problem is solvable with the techniques they have if they just scale it up. Now, exactly how far it's got to scale, we don't quite know, but maybe it's a factor two, maybe it's a factor five, the techniques keep getting better and better. And, you know, the exact date when all of these problems get solved is, is still as vague as it ever was. But you can see a clear path to success building on techniques that they have. And they're, they've demonstrated the willingness to, to augment what they're doing with any new thing that somebody else finds, which is relevant to the problem. So they're not relying on a breakthrough. They're just scaling up stuff that's known to work really well. I mean, Carpathy stresses this when you see him talk about this, like they're not inventing new stuff. They're taking stuff that's known to work and they're scaling it up. So they will succeed. I think, you know, there's a little doubt. Because we don't know the exact threshold that you have to get to before everybody agrees that this works really well. Um, it's, you know, it's hard to say exactly what that date is, but they're making really good progress on, you know, and they will get there. Now, comma might succeed if there's a new zero breakthrough, right? They could get the advantage where they can suddenly, where, you know, doing it with their garage full of GPUs suddenly becomes possible. But that's a lot less likely than Tesla just getting there. And if Mu Zero does become possible, I, you know, I think Carpathy would say, hey, let's do that. And then, you know, Tesla would be taking all of the enormous resources they're already devoting to this problem. And they would make very rapid progress on it. So why is, like, your view... And that this is just a scaling problem. Why isn't this like the common view? Uh, and I'm asking the whole panel here. Like, why is this not like the common view that's the that's been that we see like in mainstream media or from so-called experts or savvy communicators and tech analysts? Like, the only one I know of is basically like Ark Invest that is basically actually seeing what uh, James has been. Because people who are critical of what Tesla is doing, I'll be short, Omar. People who are crystal critical of what Tesla is doing simply do not understand anything that James just talked about. 
Well, l- l- go, go ahead. I think I think James brings up a really good point, which is, you know, don't even bet on Tesla. Forget about Tesla. Just bet on the growth of deep learning. Because, you know, most people who don't really follow software that closely probably don't know that much about this. But for the last decade, we've been undergoing a total revolution in how people produce software. You know, Andre Karpathy calls it software 2.0. And it really started, as James alluded to, with AlexNet in 2012 where there was a Stanford uh, library called ImageNet. And Fei-Fei Li at Stanford, she just put out millions of images and what they were. Okay, here's a picture of a cat. And there's a picture, and there's a little text that says cat. Here's a picture of a dog. And there's a, you know, a text that says dog. And she put out a challenge. She said, who can write a computer program that can correctly identify more of these images than anybody else because this was a problem that computers had never tackled before right like how can a computer take an image and recognize what's in it it had never been done before and there was a break you know people generally at that time considered that deep learning couldn't really handle high resolution images like maybe really low resolution images but nothing more than that it was just not enough compute to really tackle that and then these guys came with AlexNet in 2012, three years after Waymo was founded, by the way. And they said, hey, well, we trained a neural network with the GPUs. And this let us get a breakthrough result on the ImageNet benchmark. And since then, really, deep, deep uh, neural networks have been blowing our mind ever since. Like every year with these new kind of use cases that we couldn't have imagined before or thought were possible. The old kind of way of writing software was you had to provide a list of like procedural instructions to the computer. So for example, if I wanted to, you know, make lunch, you know, computers don't make lunch, but I'm just saying in terms of the code, you might write, okay, first you need to open the fridge, then you need to take the bread out of the fridge, you need to take the cheese out of the fridge and put the cheese in between the bread, then shut the fridge. You really had to list out all the steps for how you wanted the computer to execute a task. But with deep learning, it was kind of just like, here's all this data that we've gotten from the internet and people, you know, now using network computers on such a massive scale. And you figure out, you search for the algorithm. And like Andre calls this software 2.0, you don't actually write the code yourself. You give it the data and help it figure out. So since then, we've seen, you know, neural networks beat the best Go players, beat the best uh, Star, StarCraft players and uh, uh, Dota players and all these kinds of video games. Um, amazing text-to-speech, right? I mean, we've all seen, uh, see, I mean, sorry, speech-to-text in the last 10 years where you can go on Google and, you know, speak or translate. And it's just like amazing, right, for the most part. And, uh, you know, beyond that, like, you know, GPT-3, they just said, okay, train it on the whole internet, then predict the next character. And so this approach has basically been, you know, a total breakthrough um, for how we write software. And Tesla's going to be able to take advantage of the natural growth. Like what we know about deep learning today, you know, in another 10 years, in 20 years, we're going to laugh at how primitive our understanding was of how to build these systems where you train them based on tons of data. So let's say some kind of breakthrough approach emerged. Um, 
you know, Tesla already has uh, a huge amount of data, a fleet that can allow it to connect, collect new data if, you know, it needs to be labeled in a different way. They can ship any kind of software they can imagine or any kind of idea they discover in the future to their fleet of existing cars. And I think that's really powerful. And the public still hasn't fully digested this. And I think that's really a lot of the hard part of what they have understanding is they're not used to something that updates and gets better. If I can just address, you know, coming back to the Tesla Q thing, I think this comes off Omar's point. I don't think they are going to understand what Tesla's deep learning approach is going to do or what any deep learning approach is going to do. I think we have to address, if we're going to confront Tesla Q, we have to address some of the common things they say and why they're wrong. So just for example, I tweeted this. I was driving home with my daughter today. And at this point, I was driving the car myself rather than having the car drive itself. And my daughter said it was funny that I had to have my hands on the wheel when the car was driving. You know, there's a nag. But there's no nag when you're just driving the car. It doesn't remind you to put your hands on the steering wheel when you're driving. When, they, when a human is driving, the, then there's this misperception that, I forget who said this, someone recently said this, that um, the car, I think it was like a regulator with somebody from like the NTSB or something like that was saying, we can't just have these cars driving without somebody watching them all the time. I'm like, but that's exactly what the car, what FSD requires is that somebody watches it all the time. So there's a lot of, misperceptions and misstatements about what is actually happening so the idea people think the idea is that people are with fsd beta are just hopping in the back seat and saying take me to mcdonald's and the car just drives off and that's not what happens so I, I guess my big question is what are some of the most common misstatements and how do we address them one of my favorite things to say is that i i trained two uh, human driver betas my daughters to drive cars and I couldn't really touch the pedals at all. And I had basically limited, if any access to the steering wheel while they were a menace to the society, <laughs> arguably still are right. Um, you know, teen drivers are, are terrible. They, they have 10 or 20 times the accident rate of 35 to 50 year old drivers, you know, so what, I don't, I mean, that's an example to me of how we can confront the, the, the argument. Oh, it's terrible that Tesla's putting these, you know, cars out in beta. We have beta drivers all the time. They're just human beta. But what, what do you guys feel are strong counters? What some of the most common objections that people raise to FSD and what are some of the best answers to those? Let me, I want to mention one thing. It, there's a, there's an entirely different uh, category of FUD, which comes from people who actually do uh, have reason to claim to be expert in the space, um, you know, which is different from super basic misconceptions. And you probably have to approach this from a Yeah, I, I... On, on some level, I feel that um, maybe it's because like neural nets are some sort of like black box or maybe because people don't realize, you know, the, the the technology has sneaked up on them and has become like ubiquitous, like translate uh, voice to text and stuff like that, that maybe they don't realize. And it feels like maybe FSD is like like somebody coming out tomorrow and saying, well, I'm working on a warp drive or something. And, you know, we haven't even like mastered like just going to space 
with reusable rockets yet, like fully reusable. And now somebody comes out like the leap is too far in people's uh, psyche. Do you think that could be a part of it? Uh, I'm not, and I'm not talking about Tesla Q who, who are doing this out of bad faith, but maybe those uh, so-called experts or experts in the field, they, they can't stretch their imagination to, to those. Lack of imagination on the part of the general public, like I think that explains a lot of stuff. And th certainly there, you know, there are very few people who are as interested in this as you know the the Tesla community is, right? And like my dad is is uh, he doesn't have a Tesla yet. I'm trying to get him into one, but uh, you know every time it, I we I have the 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 silly things that Warren mentioned, like I run into with my dad all the time, really basic misconceptions that he gets from you know headlines of whatever newspaper he's reading, and that you know that that's an issue that I don't really know how to go at addressing. I, um, there's this other thing that I would like people to understand because I think it gets left out, which is um, I, when Alpha, when AlphaFold, so AlphaFold, just for anybody who doesn't know what it is, like DeepMind did, uh, they did a deep learning based um, protein structure search system that basically would predict the shape of a protein from the DNA code, essentially that, 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 that describes it. And this is a longstanding problem that dates back about 50 years that the um, biomedical community has worked on with great fervor uh, because it's considered a really, really important problem and not made a lot of progress. So, so I was reading the blog of, of a fellow who works in this space and had worked in this space for decades. I mean, he'd been, he, he, he'd been working on this problem because he thought it was really important, you know, and he had a whole lab full of people who worked on this problem with him. And he was one of like 20 different labs. And he was describing when he saw the results from AlphaFold, like essentially solving this problem using a technique that's completely different than anybody in the field ever thought uh, about applying to it. And something like he personally didn't know anything about. And, you know, he described like his stomach, you know, like feeling butterflies or feeling like he was falling because, you know, he they had invested so much in, for so long, like he had built his whole career around doing this stuff. And while he was delighted to see the problem being solved because he thought it was really important, he found himself having this kind of aversion to the fact that somebody else had come in and just solved the problem. So deep learning is getting that kind of pushback from experts in a lot of fields who are sort of feel like they're being run roughshod over by this new technique that's coming out and solving problems that they built their career around. And that's an important component of the FUD at the expert side of things that, um, you know, there are a lot of people who've worked on a lot of these hard problems who are basically saying it can't be that easy and, uh, and who are pushing back on it. And you can't easily dissuade them. They're, they're in the space where they, you know, they just have, unless they're going to spend time to learn the new technique, they, they're going to have to get used to the idea. They're going to have to see enough examples of the technique actually working before they're going to believe that it actually displaces all the expertise that they developed over so many years to do this kind of stuff. 
Yeah, I'm just uh, reminded of the, the the recent tweet from Senator Richard Blumenthal uh, when we're talking about the the safety, and, and I'll just read it. Um, Tesla is putting untrained drivers on public roads as testers for their mis, uh, mis- misleadingly named unproven system, a seeming recipe for disaster. Serious safety concerns should be put this reckless plan in reverse. It's Russian roulette for unsuspecting drivers and the public. And, uh, of course, he was quote-tweeting uh, Laura Kudlani. And I got to say, uh, this was ties up to Warren, but this statement is like provably false. Like, for example, Omar has been driving and has had a driver's license and has been on the road. And I'm, I would bet that he pays more attention when FSD beta is engaged than when it's not. And a lot of people who are going to have the button and clicking the button and maybe soon getting to be FSD beta testers, they will have to have a score of 100 to basically be, so So these are safe drivers that are going to pay extra attention while supervising a system. I don't see how we could say that this is more dangerous than having teenage drivers, student drivers on the roads or on, uh, you know, pro, uh, temporary permits or, or stuff like that. What do you say to that, Warren? I, no, I just, you know, really simple. If Senator Blumenthal believes that, then we should not allow ordinary parents to teach their children to drive cars. We should only allow people to learn to drive cars from trained professionals who are trained to teach people to drive. And the practical reality is I watched, look, I watched Omar drive across, I should say, I watched FSD beta drive across the country with Omar supervising. And Omar is sitting in the driver's seat. He has access to the pedals. He has access to the steering wheel. When I taught my daughters to drive, I did not have access to the steering wheel. I did not have access to the pedals. Um, And I would say, in a sense, Omar is probably better able to predict what the car might do wrong than a parent would be able to predict what their child might do wrong. It's It's hard to see. What I would notice from teaching my children to drive is they don't see the road the same way we do which is kind of different. The, the FSD beta sees more than we do. Children might look at the wrong things. They might not realize where they're at. They're like focused on staying in between the lines, right? Which is easy for FSD beta. They're not looking down the road to see, wait a minute, is that bicyclist coming out in the road? So I actually think the task of supervising FSD beta driving is easier than the task of teaching your child to drive a car. For those two reasons, you don't have access to the controls and it's harder to predict what your kid's going to do wrong. Does that make sense to you, Omar? Yeah, I mean, I think that's completely right. Um, It's a lot easier. You have a view into what the car is thinking with the visualization. It's a lot more predictable. You get to know the software and to preemptively disengage. I think that it's easy enough for the average person to do it. Right. And it's really only going to be a few years that people need to watch, you know, maybe as little as like a year or two, maybe as much as five years, but it's really only going to be a few years that people need to watch it. And then it's going to get be so good. The reliability level is far excessive of a human. And then it'll actually get to the point where the human having control actually makes it less safe. And that's when you'll start to see models emerge, you know, with the wheel removed. Um, But generally, I think a lot of this confusion is really about partial autonomy, 
right? And people don't understand partial autonomy, full autonomy, where does it all fit in? And I, I think what people really don't understand is, look, Google announced their self-driving car project in 2009. It's now almost 2022, right? We're talking about like 12, 13 years. And have driverless cars really launched in any meaningful scale? Not really. You can go to Chandler, Arizona, and you can take a Waymo within the geofence, but you can't even take it to Phoenix. So self-driving cars have not launched at a meaningful scale where it actually makes a difference in people's lives. And people say, hey, I'm going to um, you know, sell my car and I'm just going to take these autonomous cars everywhere. And that's going to eliminate the risk of a crash or dr- dramatically reduce it. That hasn't happened. So the question really is, okay, how do we get lots and lots of automated cars on the road as quickly as possible? And Tesla figured out that, or they came up with a strategy that the way to do that was partial autonomy. And you're going to use the existing cars on the road and you'll start to ship whatever features you can. They've been doing this for years with traffic control, with the active safety features, with navigator on autopilot, with all these things. And now they're launching even more features that can basically, in some cases, completely automate a drive from parking lot to parking lot without you having to touch a thing in terms of disengagements. That is starting to be possible in some cases, right? So it's going to take some time to get that more reliable. And people kind of go, well, how is it full self-driving if I need to watch it? And it's like, look, you know, when you buy what you're buying from them is full self-driving. They're not going to keep the old versions around and make you buy a new version. When you buy it, you buy the whole thing because it would be unsafe to keep old versions around. So every update that comes until it is truly driverless, you're going to get that if you pay for the full self-driving. But today, it is not an autonomous car that you can sleep in. Right now, it's at an early stage where you have to watch it. You have to be ready to take over. And you should expect to have to take over when it does things wrong um, and be ready for that. And in fact, the cabin camera is actually going to watch you and make sure you're paying attention. Make sure you're not using your phone. Make sure you don't fall asleep and respond appropriately if you do. So I think this is a lot of the confusion. You know, a lot of the critics are dishonest and they want to have it both ways. If a drunk driver slams into somebody and crashes into them, they want to blame autopilot. Well, what about the fact that the guy was drunk, right? That doesn't matter. It was autopilot, right? It was all autopilot's fault. But then at the same time, they want to say, okay, well, it's just a level two system. So they want to downplay it as just a level two system when it's convenient. But then if there's a drunk driving death or something, then they say, well, it was obviously autopilot to blame. So I think a lot of this is really not understanding that, guys, we've gotten nowhere on autonomy for a decade. Okay, more than a decade. Is it going to be two decades? Here's the path forward. Partial autonomy. Starting to ship these features to people today and to continue to ship updates to make them better and better and better until they're driverless in some places and situations. And then driverless in all situations, places, weather conditions, all of that. Um, And, you know, that's what we're going to as really people continue to train the system. Um, 
So I think that's really what people are struggling to understand, the difference between partial and I just want to ask James a question. I think a reasonable position that might make sense is to say, you know what, we won't have the cars driving. We'll have them run in shadow mode, which for those who don't know, the human is driving the car. The car is watching. The car is making predictions. The car is deciding what it would do and then sees what happens. James, is there a reason why that's not sufficient for FSD to develop into genuine full self-driving? It'll take longer. I mean, there are a lot of different ways you can go with these problems. And uh, Tesla, like my sense of is that Tesla has uh, opted to do things the quickest way uh, that they can, and st- you know, within the, ro- the uh, reasonable resources and keep. Interesting. So we have uh, had callers very patiently waiting in the queue. So let's take a few questions. Uh, Dimitri, you're up. Just unmute your mic, Dimitri, or we're going to go to Rob. Okay. Rob, you're up. Rob left. <laughs> All right. Well, let me let me let me make a pitch here really quick for those who who didn't. Something that happened earlier. The reason I think I was invited to the panel was Beth Kindig made this statement criticizing FSD, saying you know you couldn't have you couldn't do it in the car or whatever. She made these nonsensical statements about FSD, and I got that irked me. And then somebody else said something that irked me and. For those who don't know, my daughter's friend was uh, run over, was it was in a crosswalk and hit by a car. And the driver did, said that he did not see her. And I believe, you know, I wasn't there, but I believe having a, a, now a small amount of experience with FSD, that the odds are that FSD, a Tesla with FSD in the same position, would have seen her soon enough to break at least enough to not kill her. Um, and I made a video about this where I got somewhat emotional because I remember this girl, I videoed her dancing, you know, my daughter, she was in the same dance class as my daughter. Um, and I'm very upset about this girl dying. And there's this, and I want to see if you guys disagree with me on this. There's a million people a year who are killed in car accidents. And if we shift to a world of all self-driving cars, then we eliminate nearly all of those million deaths. And so if it's a million a year and you delay the advent of self-driving cars by a year, you've killed a million people. And the complaint when the, in the video that I made recently, the, 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 the concern raised by the Tesla Q people is, oh, autopilot has killed 10 or 20 people. Well, if, if auto, and, and that's over like a four-year span, and it really turned out that 20 was really 10, and I don't even concede the 10, you're talking about maybe two people a year killed by autopilot, you're ignoring the number of lives that, that FSD saves, which is probably more than the two. But you're comparing that to the potential, you know, if you delay self-driving by one year, you kill a million people. Does, and I think people have trouble grasping that. Does, 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 every, does anyone on the panel, this, or maybe we should go to a caller, but I just wanted to stress, this is why this is so important to me. And I think this is why this should be so important to everyone is we want fewer people to be killed by cars. And if we get FSD to where it will be soon, 
which is 360 degree division division all the time, never falls asleep, never gets sick on drugs, never gets distracted. All of the things that a lot of the human errors that cause these accidents are gone. Um, that's why I'm so motivated. You know, obviously I'm a Tesla shareholder. I wanted to work as a Tesla shareholder, but I'd really like to not have children die. I, I don't think that's crazy. So sorry. Warren, yeah. Warren, I agree with you. This is Emmett. I totally agree with you hundred percent. And this is sort of like the higher calling here. It's not about the Tesla stocks, it's not about the Tesla brand. It's literally saving lives. I mean, car accidents, I think is the third leading cause of death um, after like cancer and heart disease. So you can almost eradicate that with the advent of full self-driving a few years sooner than otherwise would be. That's a huge win for humanity. And so, yeah, that's really the higher calling. I think a lot of these, you know, journalists need to kind of consider when they're writing their clickbait articles in the coming year or so on the first full self-driving death that will be, will inevitably happen. Um, It's going to be a media frenzy and uh it's really going to be sad that it's going to it could potentially delay the advent of full self-driving comment on the media frenzy thing that um look at this is and so the uh self-driving cars people have been working on them for a really long time and uh incidentally uh, warren that argument that you that you just cited about you know, rapidly developing uh, full self-driving capability being, uh, you know, essentially measuring the cost of delay in terms of the number of people that, that die that die per day. That was something that Chris Ermson used to say back uh, when he was still running uh, Google's uh, auto. You don't hear Google say it very much anymore, unfortunately, because they um, they they opted more and more over time for absolute safety as opposed to rapid progress. I mean, I would contend that they and they people on that team they disagree with it, but I would contend that they sacrificed getting there, uh, getting there quickly. Um, you know, on that basis, and and part of the argument that they made for moving slower than they had to because they wanted to be absolutely safe was what Emmett just mentioned, which is there's this fear inside. The, the the business for that got voiced a lot in the early days that we need to really do this well because if we mess it up the public will reject it and then even more people die because that delays the rollout of this life-saving technology but in the ensuing years we've seen people die uh in in uh in accidents involving cars that have varying degrees of automation and the public really hasn't responded. I mean, if, if you look at the public responding in ways that actually matter, that ways that would actually delay the technology, it really hasn't happened. That that would either require them to demand regulations, like people to demand regulations, not media blowhards to demand regulations, but people to actually ask their representatives to uh, to to do something to delay this technology, or it would require changes in consumer behavior where people rejected these technologies. And what we've seen over time is that, you know, despite the fact that there have been bumps in the road, we, uh, the adoption of this technology is rapidly expanding. I mean, the consumers, you know, voting with their dollars are are accepting this more and more. And even though there have been, you know, extra uh, accidents that got super hyperbolic media treatment there really you know aside from the occasional grandstanding senator there really hasn't been any regulatory pushback that was unreasonable i mean 
the NHTSA investigating accidents, that's not unreasonable, right? This is a new phenomenon. This is their bailiwick, and that's what they're supposed to be doing. If they start moving to regulate the technology, then we'll have some evidence that things have gone too far. And I would argue that there, there's no evidence so far that the public is rejecting the technology. So I don't understand why we keep assuming that the, the, the public will. I mean, inside the, the field, that's something that it's become a mantra. You know, it's just been repeated so many times. It's become true that you need absolute safety because otherwise the technology will get set back. But, you know, I look at all the other safety systems that we have, you know, I mean, my favorite example is airbags. Airbags killed a lot of people before they got good, and they still kill people every year. And you don't see the public rejecting airbags because they're imperfect. So I don't see why we should believe that the public, I'm not talking about the media or people who are in the business of, of, of scaring us all, but that, that the public actually doesn't understand that a system you know, that saves lives, that works really well, but isn't perfect, is something that they should uh, refuse to allow. Yeah, I agree the public for sure. I think they're smarter than um, uh, politicians even think, but I just think, you know, like the media who's in the business of uh, getting people to click on their articles about FUD, fear and rust and doubt around self-driving, they're going to push it. And then I think there's going to be people like Senator Blumenthal and lobbyists who are in the ear of Biden's administration, you know, all kind of pushing to delay it, you know, to kind of set Tesla back if possible. I'm not saying it will happen. I just think there's a certain probability there you can't ignore. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how that probability goes over time. But it's, it's certainly a possibility uh, that it gets delayed through some kind of regulation pushed by lawmakers, you know, uh, which is sort of like the Boeing, remember the Boeing uh, 737s or whatever, all grounded for like years until they figured out this thing, you know, like what if there's like one autopilot death of like a kid being run over by a self-driving car, it's on video and it's put on the news and people are like, be careful about watching this, it's going to upset you and it gets people emotionally upset and then it's enough for the political folks to kind of seize a little power and say, hey, we're going to stop this until we can investigate further, you know, and then it could be like a investigation that takes who knows how long is my opinion. But that's in the US. I still think it'll come out, whether it's Norway, China or whatever, I think it'll still come somewhere before the US, even if that does happen. You know that uh, that some of the sort of most sympathy worthy uh, airbag victims were babies, right? Like babies and small women were this class of people that were getting killed by air in early airbags. They couldn't, they didn't have the capability to change the amount of uh, the deployment force, and so they cal you know they they calibrated the deployment force for a medium sized adult, and so if you had a, a small child or a small woman or a baby in the sea, it would kill them. And there were a, lot, there were a number of super mm -hmm. gruesome accidents as a consequence of this. They got a lot of airplay and the public still, you know, they didn't. Yeah. yeah, no, I remember discussions of people saying we should outlaw airbags, sort of like, you know, other political discussion, but never took took wind. And, and, and there was a possibility that air, uh, airbags could have been delayed or outlawed temporarily until it was addressed, but it didn't happen. But I'm just saying there's a possibility now that something could happen to Tesla's full self-driving getting delayed. I'm not saying it's probable or it's going to happen, but there's certainly a significant possibility that can't be ignored in my mind. 
I think there's also a distinction to be made like airbags. Uh, yes, they're a life-saving uh, imp- uh, like uh, system, same as uh, safety belts, but they're not, they're not cool for lack of a better word. Whereas I think everybody that thinks about the future wants a self-driving car. Uh, Alex, do you want to? Yeah, let, let's give the callers a chance. Okay, so I'm going to bring you up. You just have to unmute uh, and start speaking. So next up is uh, Emoji Guy. You're up. What's your question? Comment. Hi. Um, I've got a question for James um, in regards to the interview with Dave Lee and George Hartz and George had suggested that um, robot taxis were at least eight years away and that Tesla hardware was limited uh, in terms of the, the cameras and the sensors were a couple of generations behind. Do you think that, you know, this is a problem that can be overcome quite easily? And does Dojo really change the picture on this? James, if you're trying to. Okay, so I feel James is maybe otherwise occupied. Uh, We'll come back to your question, uh, Emoji Guy. Uh, We're going to take the next caller. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, Sarek, you're up. Sarek, you're up. Oh, uh, hey, sorry, I was on mute. Uh, so I have a question uh, related to quantum computing. As far as I understand right now, Tesla is mostly using like deep learning and uh, uh, approach like to solve the full self-driving. What about the quantum um, like com- computing for solving the, f- um, the like full self-driving technology? So I just wondered um, yeah, on using this technology. Thank you. Anybody want to feel that question? Because the simple yeah, answer. So quantum computers are quantum computers are very much. Nobody has really built a a quantum computer that could start to try and tackle some of these problems in a meaningful way. So, you know, we're a ways away from quantum computing being relevant to autonomy. Yes, I'd have to wholeheartedly agree. So let's take next caller. Uh, Uh, I just wanted to say the app crashed on me and I had to log back in, so I missed a minute or two. Okay, so we had uh, um, Emoji Guy asking uh, about the interview with uh, Lee, uh, Dave Lee, and uh, George Hotz, where George Hotz said basically that uh, full self-driving was about eight years away and that Tesla's hardware was uh, lagging behind like a few versions uh, to what was like currently being used. So he wanted you to comment on that. And what impact Dojo would have. Yes, and what impact, yeah. Uh, it's an interesting assertion. Uh, Kama's hardware is way behind Tesla's hardware, so it seems kind of strange to suggest that Tesla w- would lose on the on the hardware front. Um, and Tesla's hard. I mean, Tesla is the 
you know, they, they have an application accelerator. They built an FSD chip. Everybody else in the space right now is still using GPUs. And GPUs work. They're less ideal for the application. Uh, Kama AI is using a SOC with a GPU in it. And GPUs are maybe, you know, 5x less efficient than application-specific ICs at doing this kind of stuff. So I'm not, I'm not sure where George was coming from on the hardware criticism. Maybe he was talking about sensors, but, you know, once again, uh, so Kama's, Kama's latest system has higher res cameras, but they have a lot fewer of them. So the actual pixel density at the field of view is a lot lower. So that would also be a weird criticism for... They're basically George. running on an Android. Yeah, well, I, I mean, they're it, yeah, it's an Android phone on steroids now. The, the Kama 3 has got a lot more power than uh, any recent Android phones. But yeah, it basically, it's a, it's a powerful Android phone. And they use 280 degree cameras to try to get 360 coverage, although they have to look through the infrastructure of the car to do that because it goes where the rear view mirror does. And then they have one narrow camera in front. Um, so it, I mean, you can come up with criticisms for the hardware of anybody doing this. You can come up with criticisms of Tesla's hardware, like on, and theoretically you can. Um, but I don't know, like, what, anyway, I'm uh, seeing that, uh, emoji guy who has the question is mm, next uh, in okay. line after the current caller. So maybe he can elaborate Uh little you're up. Just unmute your mic. Little you're the next caller. Okay. We're going back to emoji guy. Emoji guy. You want to follow up? Yes. Um, I think, uh, uh, George was talking about the actual sensor in the camera, saying it was a couple of generations ahead of Tesla. Um, and I think I watched uh, an interview with Emmett and one of the FSD drivers, and he said he had some concerns about the uh, B-pillar cameras being only able to see 80, 80 meters um, and whether that's going to be a problem going forward uh, for Tesla. Yeah, so he's uh, George is right that he, the sensors that they that he's using right now are they're more recent generation than the sensors that that Tesla's using. So they have they're higher resolution and they have higher dynamic range. Now, uh, once again, uh, in in the particular case of comparing Kama and what Tesla is doing, that's a really bad comparison because um, Kama has two. Kama has one sensor facing forward, one sensor facing backward. They're HD sensors, so they have like one kilopixel horizontal, but it has to use that across the entire front of the car. Whereas you know Tesla's got like five cameras looking forward. So even though the individual sensors are lower resolution, the aggregate resolution of the sensors is a lot higher. Uh, Kama's also got somewhat higher dynamic range, but that only matters if the dynamic range that Tesla's got is insufficient and at least from the frames I've seen coming out of the cars. I mean, the, the cameras, the sensors that Tesla's got in their car, they were designed for this application. I mean, they have a dynamic range, which is appropriate to self-driving and is probably sufficient. That's not to say that they won't, you know, newer sensors, better sensors come out all the time. I'm sure they'll add better sensors at some point um, because, you know, better is better. Um, let's see, the other thing was, was the sensor question. What was the second one? Can somebody remind me? Uh, it was, and and with Dojo, you know, if you were to just, you know, finger mm -hmm. in the air, give a prediction for when RoboTaxi is alive, what would be your sort of prediction on that, given what you know now mm -hmm. and AI Day has come and gone? 
Yeah. This, well, so that that's always a fraught question because it depends on where, where you draw the line, right? Is a level five, they can go anywhere. Um, I think they start being useful in a year. That I mean, they're already useful to some extent. You can, you know, if you have AP in your car right now, it's really relaxing. It'll probably be a year before FSD is that kind of relaxing. Um, before the cars are driving themselves, you know, it's that kind of time frame. But it, my disclaimer there is that I've said we're about a year away for the last couple of years. <laughs> so I've been consistently wrong about that, as have a lot of people in the space. But I, you know, I persist in believing that we're we're getting really close. It it it's it is the kind of thing that you you're not going to know until you cross the last line because you never. I mean, Elon has mentioned a couple of times about getting stuck in a local minimum or a local maximum, which is that this is this re- reference, this idea that you're getting better and better and better. And then you get kind of stuck for a little while. You stop getting better and you have to look at why you're not getting better and come up with some resolution to that. And so recently, the, you know, taking the getting the radar out of the car and going to pure vision, that was that was in response to them hitting what they thought was a local Max. Now, if they weren't, if they don't hit any more local maxima, they're like a year away. But then we don't know if they're going to hit another one in between there and and encounter another delay. But a lot of people in the space want to argue that they're like some of the most famous uh, people that comment on this topic are are arguing ten years and twenty years kind of numbers. Um, I have a really hard time believing that we're ten years away from, you know, being able to tell your car to go park itself in the garage. I just I just want to say something about this. Being a fairly new Tesla driver and having just yesterday or the day before yesterday driven, or I should say letting FSD or navigate on autopilot or whatever drive me for several hours. When I got to the super the last supercharger station before coming home, something glitched in the car. I'm pretty sure it was because I enabled an app called Teslify, which I will never use again. I don't know for sure that it was that, but I think it might have been that. The car, the FSD didn't work. The cruise control didn't work. And I had to drive the car myself. And I was like, well, this sucks. <laughs> All of a sudden, I had to drive the car myself. And it's like, damn, I like when the car drives. <laughs> so, um, it's really, really good. It's really, really, it's not perfect. It makes mistakes. You have to watch it. But it's really, really good. And I think we're going to go to version 11 which is going to be one stacked run. And Omar and I disagree about this. You know, he's got a lot more experience, so you should listen to him over me. But my, my sense of it is that a lot of the interventions are either nav related or they are at the moment or at or near the moment of switch over from one stack to the other. And if you go to one stack for everything, I don't know if everybody understands what, maybe James could explain one stack to rule them all. But to me, the, the transition from stacks is a potential problem and the nav integration with fsd is a potential problem james you can you comment on what can you explain to the audience what one stack to rule them all means and what it means to switch between so as a stack a stack is um all the layers of the uh, perception and planning system that get that that basically operate as a block they're they're built in these modular layers and and when you put all the layers together into one configuration that you're driving with that's called a stack right now tesla the last time I checked, they were they had three separate stacks in the car, and one of them seemed like it was for city city streets. One seemed like it was for highways, and one seemed like it was for parking lots. So uh, 
each the advantage of having multiple stacks is you can you can you can more quickly get good at parking lots if you're only thinking about parking lots and you can get better at city streets if you're only thinking about city streets so you get a training advantage that is an individual stack within its domain gets better quicker but then you have the problem of deciding when to switch from one stack to the other because one of the things parking lot stack will be a lot better at parking lots but it's going to be really bad at streets so when you make the transition from like say being on a city street to a parking lot and you have to make the decision about switching if you do the decision wrong you know, if you're driving your city streets in the parking lot or your parking lot in the city streets, you know, you have problems at these transitions. So getting to a unified stack is challenging from a training standpoint, like building a single stack that's, that's as good as parking lots in the parking lot and as good as streets on the street and so forth is more challenging. It takes more data, it takes more training time and more hand tuning. But once you get there, there's a, all of these categories of problems that you eliminate. And I just, you know, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, like just one example, we're driving to a supercharger, which is, I think, in a gas station, a Wawa or something like that. And there's a very clear entrance on the main roadway that we're on. But for whatever the reason, the nav says, go past that, make a left turn and turn in at this other entrance where it turns out that there's these. There's a barrier between lanes, so you can't really make the left turn that the nav is telling you to make. So I don't know whether Omar counted that disengagement, but that was a disengagement that wasn't really the fault of FSD. It was the fault of NAV or the way the NAV interacts with FSD. I don't, does it make sense that, I mean, can, can um, FSD take over the NAV part two, or is that fundamentally a NAV issue that, you know, the maps have to be better at telling you where the correct entrance is. I, I think there was at least two or three of those incidents where, you know, the nav put the the entrance, like drove us like 50 feet past the entrance and told us to turn left when there was no entrance. Yeah, yeah so as, as this, so the perception system, it, it's, it's tasked with identifying relevant uh, features in, in a particular context and trying to understand the context. So it has two things that it kind of has to get better at. One of them is, identifying the thing you want, like drivable space, for instance, or, you know, where another car is. And the other thing it has to get better at is understanding the context that these decisions get made inside of. So at a certain level of context ability, it needs the map to be pretty accurate because if the map, the the map says, you know, this driveway is the driveway that I want to take. Well, a human driving along might look at a particular driveway and understand, well, that can't be the right driveway because it turns into the wrong kind of parking lot. You know, I'm going to a grocery store and this is a driveway. As the nav, as autopilot gets better at understanding what it sees in context, the constraints on how good the nav system needs to be to get acceptable performance, those get relaxed. In the long run, uh, the nav system will stay largely separate. Like there will always be a big chunk of the nav uh, process that isn't getting done inside autopilot, although little bits of it might come in, the very localized bits of nav you know, which is where it's just handling the navigation within the, the, the v, within what it can see right now. I think it's, we're really unlikely to see nav, for instance, try to figure out like the shortest distance between your house and your work, because that problem is already really well solved other ways. Yeah. So we have uh, callers again, Max, you're up unmute, ask your question or comment. 
Yeah, uh, thanks, thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, this quick question is how will the long tail problem be, uh, will be addressed? That's the question. Uh, did anybody catch that? Could you repeat the long? Yeah, so the long. Oh, the long tail. tail. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, it's it's you know you have to get enough nines that you can provide functionality that people want. Um, you never get the last nine. The nines. Uh, so the system gets better exponentially, and nines is an exponential measure. So. Uh, in a weird way, you you get more nines in linear time. You don't get it doesn't take exponential time to get exponentially better because the system itself improves exponentially. So my answer, my short answer to that is that is that even though the you know the march of nines is intimidating when you think about it mathematically, the fact that the system improves exponentially makes the march of nines a tractable problem. It does make it hard to predict exactly like you know. How many nines do you need? Do you need seven? Do you need nine? Do you need 11? What is the right number of nines? We still don't actually know the answer to that. So that's a march of nines problem that is going to persist for a while. But the system will solve the march of nines in linear time by getting better exponentially. And can I just ask you about that, James? Um, one of the things that we just saw is that they're expanding FSD beta, which I believe means they will be able to take in more data. And Recently, maybe two months ago, Carpathy said they had added a third supercomputer. So is it possible that one of the reasons they're expanding the beta is because they now have more compute available so they can process more data? And by having more data and more compute, that speeds up the exponential growth? It's um, So I think that there's a misperception uh, baked into the the way the way that you're thinking about it. So I'm going to attempt to correct that, and then you tell me if I got it wrong and misunderstood your question. But people tend to think of the fleet as a recording device that basically it goes out in the world and it captures data in proportion to how many cars there are. And the the fleet it's it's better to think of the fleet as a search device where Tesla can say I need this situation to make my algorithm better. I need examples of this. And then they ask the fleet and the fleet, the fleet goes around looking for these things and it only records the things Tesla asked for and sent them back. So what a bigger fleet gets you is not more data necessarily. It, can get, it could get you the same amount of data in less time. Like if Tesla says, you know, I need, I need, a, I need a thousand examples of this particular thing to solve my problem, a bigger fleet that's looking for this stuff naturally, you know, it would be able to do that quicker. But the important aspect of the of the fleet is that it's it's that you can ask for specific things uh and you get just that data back from the thing so they don't actually end up with more data because they're always asking for just the data that they need to solve the next problem they have as the fleet gets better gets bigger they can work on more problems simultaneously and that's useful well yeah but i mean you said earlier that if they only ran in shadow mode, you would still be able to find examples of things in shadow mode. There's something that they get out of the car drive, the, the FSD driving the car that they don't get out of just observing and looking for things. What do they get out of the, the vehicle? That's why I was thinking. Warren, that. Warren, they're not expanding the beta because they added another computer. That's, that's just not really how it works. 
already tried to explain this to you once, but, you know, I think fundamentally when we talk about the March of Nines, it's really kind of like, okay, you know, the team can send out queries. Like they can send out a little neural network and say, find me something like this, like James alluded to. Or, you know, you can imagine them going to the fleet every day and saying, hey, what were, I want you to, you know, what were the top five disengagements? Give me all, give me information about all the disengagements that happened. And theoretically, we have some kind of maybe AI or manual process to classify these errors as, you know, what is the class of problem, why they're occurring, and classify all these disengagements. And let's see generally what are the re- what are the top reasons people are disengaging and maybe the first day it's okay well you know left turns where you don't have a good view and it's you know people are disengaging because a car is coming and um you know the car didn't see it or something like that so okay let's fix this problem so then they fix this problem and then you work down to maybe a more rare kind of problem like okay well really snowy days it's having problems with really snowy days. So you might send out a trigger and say, okay, give me more footage of really snowy days. So you tackle that problem. And then as time goes on, you keep getting weirder and weirder problems. Like, you know, the, the hill was on fire and, you know, the air was really smoky in in a way that's very unusual. Or there was a group of, you know, a thousand people running through the street in a chicken suit or something. And, you know, this set it off in some weird way. So, you know, as time keeps going on and you keep working through um, and the fleet gets bigger, you're basically gaining those very, very rare cases where it doesn't work. It already works in all of the normal cases, but the the very rare cases where it doesn't work are just getting more and more and more rare. And because all of the other disengagements have been, you know, eliminated or perfected, you then start to see those really weird cases and can start to improve on them in ways that makes the system even more reliable. So basically they just call it churning the data wheel. You know, that's how we'll handle the log long tail events. Just keep churning the, the. I would, I would agree that the, um, that the impetus for expanding um, the FSD program was not that they had increased computational capacity because uh like they don't they don't use all the data they have already they cherry pick the data um i think the driver for expanding the fsd program was just fsd getting big getting good enough that they weren't worried about negative consequences if they added a lot okay so let's exactly. take the next next caller ricky you're up hey guys um the basis of my question may be a statement um is kind of building on that, the March of Nines. And, and I'm, I guess I'm kind of wondering how fast it could happen. Um, I, I work at an accounting firm. We're not public. We mostly do private uh, companies. And maybe about three years ago, we had a partner walk in. And he was almost lividly angry because he went to some conference with a bunch of other firms. And they came back and made a statement. And they did a comparable audit to us and probably about 50% of the time. And it turns out that they were using a piece of what they call AI software at the time. I wouldn't really call it full AI. It was just grabbing the low-hanging fruit. Um, 
And so we picked it up. And over the past three years, yeah, at first it actually took more time to get something done because we were in- implementing the project. But then as we used it, you know, it became smarter and smarter. And I, I mean, this past year, we, we almost did an audit in a year, um, it, it, an audit in a week and a half that prior had taken us a month and a half with uh, twice as many people. So I, I guess, does anybody have, else have that feeling that it could get to a point where maybe we are even underestimating exponential growth? Because we, we kind of tend to think linear. Uh, I, guess, I guess I would also kind of agree with uh, one of Omar's earlier statements about partial, like partial FSD, because that's kind of how we approached it. We took little pieces that we understood and became more comfortable with it and trusted it over time. And, and it helped us reach that full you know, potential of what we're using it for now. So uh, I, I do see that as, you know, rather than going after full safety. Yeah, people who have had that experience of like watching the software, you know, watching these techniques get better and suddenly cross a threshold where it affects them. I, you know, I, I had the example earlier of the guy, the researcher who worked on protein folding, who, you know, he knew this stuff was in the background and he'd heard about it for years, but he didn't expect it to happen. But, but then there was that day when suddenly it was good enough to do his job. And now, and, you know, so it seems really sudden on, on that threshold. Yeah, that's how the March of Nines happened. I, there will be a day when it's good when people agree that this is good enough to drive a car, and it's going to seem really sudden because because six months earlier, a year earlier, it still looked like it was really. Okay, uh, G, you're up. Caller G, you're up. Unmute your mic. Ask your question or comment. Oh, hi guys. Uh, my question is related to how, what's your view on the deployment of FSD worldwide once uh, you know, the first acceptable version is reached in the, U- in the U.S. But I'm from Brazil and uh, you know different infrastructures, traffic rules. And then the way I see it, the neural nets are used mostly for perception and uh, the driving is hand-coded mostly. So... Do you think that is going to be an easy flow to deploy it worldwide, or it would require you know a lot of work for for Tesla and other companies? Thanks. Yeah, great question. The intention is definitely to deploy it worldwide. I mean, a lot of the kind of strategic design decisions they took in the system are informed by not wanting to be in a situation like Waymo and some of the other players are where you have to really pre-map an area with LIDAR to be able to localize your position accurately. And that's really, you know, the foundation of your driving. They really wanted to make a system which, in theory, you can just look at any road anywhere in the world and it does the right thing. And they've tried to design the system to work with multiple driving policies. So, you know, as an example, I just crossed the country with FSD. And here in California... When the carpool line has a solid line, you can't change over. You have to wait until the line is dotted. And FSD knows that. It won't cross a solid line, even if I ask it to. And then when the line is dotted, it'll cross over. Now, when we cross the border into Arizona, 
the road markings are a little bit different. They have a solid line and you can cross the solid line to get into the carpool lane. That's what you're expected to do. So once I crossed the border, it knew that. And we've also seen these guys in Ukraine who got FSD working on their car. They kind of hacked it together and it was able to work in Ukraine, right? So it already has an EU driving policy um, and they've actually been testing it. There have been job postings for like Paris, you know, there's people in Canada testing it, even people in China uh, who are Tesla employees doing early testing. So the intention is definitely to launch all around the world. The reality, of course, is that, you know, there's even differences between San Francisco and Los Angeles. In theory, it should be able to work. In reality, it is a lot of work to tackle all of these regions and to, you know, handle all of the idiosyncrasies of all the region, regions in the world. It's really like a decade long project um, to, you know, kind of get to that level of reliability in every corner of the earth. So, you know, I think you're going to start to see it in, in bits and pieces um, one step at a time. And, uh, you know, I think they're not as far behind as we think in other regions. If they can get this to work in the United States, they've built a very, very strong foundation for themselves to launch it. In other yeah, there's that video slept. dropped in, in Ukraine of those uh, hackers or something that, that got a version of full self-driving and it's, it was amazing to watch. It seemed like pretty serviceable in Ukraine with uh, all different language, different road uh, laws and such. It was pretty cool to watch if you guys haven't seen that. Yeah, um, on the, the planning thing, planning the planning is going to go into the neural network. It's It starts out heuristic because, because it can. Um, it, perception can't start out heuristic, but the planning will go to the neural network and it'll probably go to the neural network before FSD is, is widely used. And then the other comment, uh, look, you need more localization the weaker the system is. As the system gets better, localization matters less. By the time FSD is really good, it won't require a lot of localization. Like it'll, when it's good, it'll be good everywhere. And when it's poor, it'll be better in some places. Yeah, Andre actually likes to say that the kind of holy grail is a system that just takes in the camera inputs and the outputs of the neural net are the steering wheel, uh, you know, turning angle and the, you know, acceleration pedal application and the brake pedal application. So, you know, all of these kind of driving rules would somehow be internalized into the training data in this kind of holy grail system that we don't quite know what to build yet. So that's definitely the direction they're kind of slowly going to. If you hear some of what he says about the autopilot team, when he started, it was a lot more procedural code, a lot less uh, deep learning. And over time, the deep learning has started consuming more and more of the procedural software 1.0. Okay, uh, Sarek, you're up. Yep, uh, thank you. So I have a question regarding the pricing for uh, like robotaxis. And uh, Elon, he mentioned at a few of the interviews that the price will be uh, 
taking the robot taxi will be cheaper than taking a bus. And uh, I mean, I drove the, I, I took a taxi, a Waymo taxi in Chandler, Arizona. And the, I mean, the pricing was exactly the same with the Uber and Lyft. I, I compared the pricing. So, uh, so do you think like when this technology will be like released? So will the price will be start like from the similar uh, price or it will start with like half price, like a dollar per mile or even it, it will go even to lower like over time or I mean, if the price will be decreasing over time or it will be kind of cheap from the beginning because like based on my calculations like the cost of owning like a car with a million miles that tesla can drive it can drive up i mean the price will go up to like 21 to 22 cents per mile so uh yeah it will be great to hear your opinion on this thank you so let's put this in perspective uber and lyft they've been operating for a number of years they've never turned a profit right they're not profitable they're losing money and they don't even own any of the cars. All they're doing is running an app that matches people who need a ride to people who can offer a ride and handling all the background checks and other infrastructure in between taxes, yada, yada, and, you know, local regulatory issues. And they're, they're losing money. Now, Waymo has the same money-losing business that some of the smartest people with shit tons of venture capital have been pouring money into Uber and Lyft for a decade and they haven't even been able to make it profitable. So Uber inherits that shit show. But on top of that, they own all the cars, which cost somewhere on the order of 250 to $400,000. They're painstakingly manually assembled, right? They make the car, then they got to disassemble the car, then add on the sensor suite. So they are losing money offering rides at the same price as Uber and Lyft. And the issue with that is, you know, they really need to be charging more because the car costs more. But, you know, at the same price where Uber and Lyft can't even make money, they need to charge that and own the car. So the unit economics of that system are pretty bad. And that's why it's kind of relatively expensive. It's the same as Uber and Lyft. Um, and even with that, they're burning a billion dollars a year. So you really kind of need a, a, a fundamentally different approach where you know you have millions of cars and they are truly driverless um and it's a fairly kind of commodity you know sensor stack that can be mass produced right you can build the best self-driving car in the world but if you can't mass produce it then it's not worth much so i think the price will come down to the point where it's pretty much free for anyone to take a ride but the kind of approach we started in 2009 the spatial approach as some call it uh is not really going to get us to that breakthrough price yeah i would just um trying to address specifically what i think the caller may have been going for there was when it starts you will not have enough robo taxis to serve customers at say 25 cents a mile because the demand would outstrip the supply. You'd need to have millions of robo-taxis ready to go in whatever market you're talking about. Because the demand for robo-taxi rides at 25 cents a mile, which I think will be the eventual price if not lower. So initially you say that you take the Bay Area and you introduce 100,000 robo-taxis in the Bay Area and you 
would lower the price below what Uber and Lyft charge. So let's say Uber and Lyft charge an average of $2.50 a mile. It's probably more than that, but call it $2.50 a mile. And pricing isn't so simple as per mile, we'll call it to simplify that. So maybe they introduce them at $1.50 a mile and the pricing would probably be adjustable based on demand. Because if there's what you don't want when you're running a robo-taxi network, on the one hand is you don't want the car sitting there doing nothing if your price is too high. And you don't want customers waiting too long for a ride if the price is too low. So initially, it's going to be it's going to be I think probably demand based the whole way through that there'll be some flexible pricing, but it probably starts closer to what Uber and Lyft charge at the beginning, but undercutting them, and then over time as you add more robo taxis to an individual market, you're able to lower prices so that the the robo taxis aren't sitting there doing nothing. And I hope people can see that balance. You can't charge too little because then people will be waiting too long for a ride and you can't charge too much because then the robo-taxis will be sitting idle. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. And I just want to check in with uh, with our guest speakers and our, our, our hosts because we were planning to do a one-hour room and we're at like close to two hours. So are you guys want to take a few more callers or are we calling it a night? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? I can do 20 minutes. Emmett, you good to go? Warren? I can stick on a little longer. If I have to drop off, I'll just quietly uh, leave, but I can stick on for a little while. I'm good for whatever. Yep, me too. Omar, you good? All right, so let's take another caller. Ricky. Just a quick dreamer question, maybe to figure out my level of geekdom. Um, how many other people have thought ahead if this is actually successful, what roads might look like in 20 years? Like, do you guys actually think it would start to change like barcodes on signs and flickering lights or something like that? <laughs> I've thought about it every day for 20 <laughs> And what have you come up yeah, that's not a short discussion. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I only have... future episode, future episode. What the, the right. roads look like in twenty years? I would just say that one of the, one of the things we already know that's coming is that the roads are going to go underground. That we're going to see a network of boring tunnels. I would say, typical city the size of Las Vegas will have a hundred miles of tunnel, and there are a thousand cities like that. So we're going to see a lot of roads go underground, which is going to reduce noise pollution, reduce other pollution, reduce pedestrian deaths even more. Um, and we may see some roads converted to green space. And then the other question is, if you go far enough in the robo-taxi world and you end up with single passenger robo-taxis, which is perhaps my fantasy and maybe I'm wrong about it, and they're three feet wide, then you've doubled the capacity of a lane. And if they follow each other really closely because they communicate with each other, you're probably increasing the capacity of a lane um, longitudinally as well as laterally. And so you may get a lot more, um, you may be a lot more efficient with your road space. Absolutely. Actually, uh, when you started talking about the tunnels, it reminded me that I went back and watched that movie AI and I was blown away that they had like tunnels everywhere in their cars. That was before any of that was even under concept. Got a little. Yeah, and I actually think that the three-inch wide car that increases uh, the utility of roads, I've heard that argument before, Warren. I think you're a little bit biased on on, on that aspect. 
Yes, I'm very biased on that aspect. All right, we're going to take hey, the next Alex, caller. Real quick, can I ask a question yes. of a couple of the panelists as, as if I was a caller? I would like to, yeah, I would just like to ask Warren and Omar, did you guys drive together for that 1,600 miles? What was that like, being in the same car for so long? Did you guys uh, get along? What Omar was great. Omar sat in the driver's seat the whole way. Uh, I thought we got along remarkably well. My biggest irritation was my brother rather than Omar and K10, who were wonderful people. <laughs> um, and my brother is a wonderful person, but he's my brother, so naturally he gets on my nerves. Well, yeah, uh, you know, we got along remarkably well. You know, it was kind of something I was thinking about, like, okay, you know, sometimes people fight on these road trips or whatever, you know, just being around each other so much, you get on each other's nerves. But no, everyone was in a good mood. and. You know, I think autopilot just made it so easy and comfortable. Like just thinking about like if we had to cross the whole country without autopilot, someone had to drive, we had to take turns <laughs> driving, you know, oh my God, it would have been a nightmare. So, you know, we talk about, oh, when's autonomy, when's the robo taxis coming? But, you know, this car did, you know, more than 99% of the drive. It was completely automated, right? And that happened today, cool. right? So it's pretty mind-blowing. I think you calculated it, right? So you calculated disengagement, and you gave each disengagement one mile, and you came up to 99.6, I think, percent, or something like that? Yep. Right, yeah. So, I mean, each disengagement was probably like a few hundred feet, you know, and then I just turned it back on right after. But, you know, if if you assume, you know, let's call each disengagement one mile of manual driving. And some of the, like one of the disengagements was like four right next to each other because of a construction where the road we had to go to was blocked off. But anyway, let's just be super liberal about it and say, you know, so 2,700, 2,700 minus 16 over 2,700, you know, that's kind of like the percentage of the distance that was completely driven by the computer. It was more than 99%. So you know, this is real, this is happening. And it's already something that we can't live without as like Warren was alluded to. I've had those times where it's like a bug in the Tesla and like autopilot doesn't activate for some reason. And you have to drive manually and you're like, fuck, this sucks. Um, and I think people are mm. going to get addicted. Yeah. I just want to really quick mention that that particular disengagement Omar is talking about, we're going towards Austin after getting off I-10 on 290 East in Texas and the road was blocked off and Google Maps was telling, I was checking Google Maps while we were doing it. Google Maps was telling us to go through this road that was blocked off. So I don't know what would have to happen for FSD to be able to figure out, wait, this road is blocked. I have to find another way to go and then ask the nav which other way to go when the nav doesn't know that it's blocked and doesn't know how to find another. Like Google Maps did not know how to find another way for us to go. I had a wing. They're going to end up building a lot of mapping technology themselves, probably. And, you know, really the vision system needs to identify I cannot proceed. I need to reroute. It needs to be able to find an alternate route and, you know, do that. It's not really at that level of advancement right now. So basically, what I had to do is take control, get it back on the right path using my own judgment of how we could arrive there without going through the roadblock. And then I turned it back on and it actually did the rest pretty well. So, 
you know, these are the kinds of things that, that need to be worked on. But, um, you know, today uh, it, it did most of it. And tomorrow, yeah, it needs to be able to do that, too. Even if a road is closed that you thought you were going to drive on, you got to find a different way. It needs to be that, you know, you're taking a nap and it's so good. It can even handle that and go find a different route. And you wake up, you don't even know that there was. Nice. Okay, so next caller, back with dubious emoji guy. Hi. Um, I just want to know, are there any uh, significant risks with autonomy not being solved? Are there things, and are, we, are we waiting on significant breakthroughs that may not be achieved within the next sort of five to seven years? Or is it now just the inevitability and we're just sort of waiting on time? And, you know, in the next five years, almost guaranteed. In my opinion, it's an engineering problem. You know, they'll, they'll keep turning the crank. It'll keep getting better. And at some point they cross a threshold where it's good enough to, you know, provide even more value to people than it does today. Eventually it's good enough to drive the car by itself. And we all agree that that's okay. And then, and down the road, it gets better and better. Breakthroughs could accelerate it significantly. Um, I wouldn't, uh, it's it's hard to know about breakthroughs because they're breakthroughs, but it, uh, they should be able to just turn the crank on what they've got right now. And yeah, I, I, I just want to address this one thing that we I hear people using the term level five, and I think we ignore the fact that many humans are not really level five. So just for example, my daughters are afraid to drive on interstate highways. Um, and FSD is perfectly happy to drive on an interstate highway. So I think, or I should say autopilot, navigate on autopilot is perfectly happy to drive on an interstate highway. <clears throat> I think we we need to recognize that you can be it can be better than human in a variety of situations without being quote level five which is i think an archaic concept um i don't know if anybody has any comment on that i should just shut up i'll shut up Alex, are you there? Oh, sorry, I'm muted. I was muted. Sorry. Uh, Praveen, you're up. Sorry. Unmute your mic. Oh. Hi. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, I had a question for James. Uh, James, I uh, appreciate everything that everyone's doing in this community. Uh, James, I wanted to uh, especially thank you for the interviews you've been doing with uh, Dave and I think a lot of us are getting a ton of value from this. Uh, I wanted to touch uh, on one of the uh, interviews that Gally had on hyperchange with a few others in the, uh, um, I guess the machine machine learning space. Um, I think it's a video that's titled AI Day, when he talks to James Wang and someone named Naveen Rao. And Naveen kept bringing up the fact that from his, um, I guess, vantage point, when he was watching uh, the AI Day presentation, he didn't seem that impressed from what Tesla was, uh, you know, presenting about Dojo, and he kept talking about how Cerebrus's system was, um, you know, orders of magnitude better, or at least significantly better. So I was wondering if you could kind of touch on this 
I know you kind of mentioned something in your last interview with uh, Dave about how maybe uh, the capabilities of Dojo were being underestimated because Tesla was maybe sandbagging a little and only talking about the off-chip um, bandwidth, if I'm getting the terminology right. So just wanted to uh, ask if you could kind of touch on this. And so I did a, um, I think it was the last thing that I did with Dave, and we talked about this in a lot of depth when we, we talked through. In fact, uh, I talked about it in so much depth, he ended up editing about half of it out and putting it in a separate video. Um, I think uh, I did I did watch that, and I think Naveen's comments were basically his hot take based on just viewing AI Day. So I don't know if he would necessarily feel the same if he actually sat down and like tried to work the numbers out to figure out like what what would map well onto this and how would it compare for the problems that that Tesla's doing relative to other platforms. I was myself pretty surprised. I mean, it it looked to me like in a lot of ways it was more straightforward than it than it turned out to be when I started getting down into the details. I don't know if I would say Tesla sandbagging so much as um, uh, they I think it's it's easy to underappreciate what they're doing if you don't like sit down and, and run the numbers. And uh, you know, after I did that I was a lot more impressed with this like I was pretty happy with the system to start with, but I was a lot more impressed with the system when I started, when I sat down and I started thinking about how it would affect the particular types of things that Tesla wants to do. Um, did I answer all of your question? Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. So I, I think, uh, did you mention that uh, parts of what you had answered may have been edited to maybe be included in another video? With Dave? Yeah. So Dave, he has a link. If you if you if you watch the first video, um, I think there's a link that he put in the comments to the full unedited version of the video, which is longer. Okay. All right, perfect. Thank I you. I mean, it it'll be great for going to bed. <laughs> oh come on. <laughs> Uh, but I, I know which video you're referring to, Praveen, uh, the galley interview with the two other guys. Uh, I don't I, I don't think he was saying the Cerebrus was like orders of magnitude better. He was, I think, more commenting on the fact that the headache that Tesla was, you know, uh, tackling by doing it in-house may not have been worth it because Cerebrus, in his mind, was pretty much equal to, to Dojo. So he was looking at more as a, a CEO of a company that he would have made like a different decisions. But I think this is, this is an ongoing story with Elon where, you know, they vertically integrate everything in-house and right. the payoffs are not immediately uh, foreseeable by most, but long-term it makes so much sense. Yeah, this, the Cerebrus system, it, like it's pretty impressive for how it's scaled out. Like they can do a lot, but the it's it's the Cerebrus system. It's built on an earlier fabrication node, so their one wafer is about the computation that Tesla gets in one tile of Dojo. So if they want to scale, and it turns out that their off-chip bandwidth is actually—I was shocked when I actually looked up the numbers. It's really terrible. Like the Cerebrus system is basically designed to work really well on any problem that you can fit entirely on a single wafer. Uh, Tesla's system will scale the problems about 100 times bigger than that. So, you know, as soon as Cerebrus wants to get, you know, 
it, Cerberus, they've got a great system. It doesn't scale the way that I think Tesla wants their system to scale. There's, there's a reason why they built that fabric as big as they did. Thank you so much. Okay, we're going to take the next call. Oh, go ahead, Omar. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, having, like, a lot of people are going to do a lot of great things in this space, in hardware. You know, I think NVIDIA, others are, are building great hardware. Um, but Tesla designs what they need, right? And they design exactly what they need. And, and that's a really powerful thing. So when you look at the FSD computer, for example, you have, you know, an NPU, uh, neural network accelerator in the hardware that can speed up inference a lot. But you also have things like hardware accelerated, you know, H.264 and H.265 video encoders, um, you know, an, an image uh, processing unit that can do things like lighten the image and remove noise and do some kind of like hardware-based pre-processing that is uh, advantageous to the neural network, which then can get, you know, better data downstream uh, in real time. And even things like the security module, which, you know, ensure that all the updates are cryptographically signed and haven't been tampered in some way. So it's, you know, others may at times have systems that have that are better in some ways or have a more impressive spec in one regard. But Tesla's not stopping with this one computer. They've got a world-class chip design team that is going to make a next generation and a next generation. And they're going to continue to design what works really well for them. And that's really powerful. This level of vertical integration, it's unheard of. Everybody else, they've got a partner, two partners, three partners to try and pull off a self-driving car. Tesla's doing it all themselves. And if you saw like the windshield uh, video they posted on YouTube recently, they're even tweaking the composition of the windshield to make the autopilot system work better. Now, that is a level of vertical integration that is unseen anywhere else. Yeah, great point. Uh, so we're going to take one last caller. We've just hit the two-hour mark. So, Rajendra, you're the lucky last call and Unmute and ask your question. Hi, guys. Uh, great discussion. So I have a, a question that is sort of a general nature. So looking at the progress AI and neural nets have done in the last 10 years, it's pretty clear that the capability of FSD and AI is going to improve uh, exponentially. So apart from technology, uh, what are the biggest obstacles to see uh, self-driving cars everywhere? I mean, is it public perception or is it that the regulations and laws have to change? or something else. Thanks. The biggest obstacle is always government, but I'll yield to everyone else on the rest of it. So what do you guys think? What's the biggest obstacle for mass adoption of full self-driving? I still think uh, I would, I mean, you know, my, my background is the tech. Um, I think if, if, if we had it today and it was working well, and the statistics showed that it was working well, that regulators will get out of the way because their job is to make the public safe 
safer. And even though they might be inefficient, they still know that, that, you know, that that's what their job is. If we had it and it was working well, I think people would accept it and it would probably ramp about as fast as we can produce the stuff. You know, I mean, there's, we'll be manufacturing limited uh, for quite a while after this stuff comes out. There's a really big fleet of cars. So I would answer that. I think the technology is, is is basically a problem when it's when it's really good. I think it'll see the adoption. And j- just a little follow up on that, like Elon always comes out with like a thousand percent better, which is uh, nine times better than the, the average human driver. Uh, do you all have the same feeling that this is what is necessary to get regulatory approval, or something lower, or something higher? I think and when the statistics are super clear, then I think regulators will be moved by it. Um, there's, you know, you can slice the pie different ways. And so when the, and so the statistics can be unclear if your advantage is only say a factor of two, you know, critics or skeptics could still come in and they could frame the question a different way and make it look like you're not actually doing much better. But e- even at the same level as a human being, you know, it's got a significant amount of utility. I, I would agree that like, if you get to 10 X, then, you know, the game is over because there's almost no way to statistically misinterpret a 10 X. Yeah. I have to agree with James. Um, I think that, you know, for everyone shaking their fist at regulators or encouraging regulators to do something, you know, regulators have been pretty supportive, at the at least in the United States, at the end of the day. NHTSA understands. They get it. They get that a technology like this has the potential to save people's lives, not just in the future, but today. You know, just the other day I was driving on FSD, and I was stopped at a red light. And I was just glancing down at the visualization, and I saw a little pedestrian stick figure guy walk from the sidewalk walk up to the side of the car and then was standing right next to the car, open the door to the car and get in and then, you know, shut the door. Right. And I saw this all on the visualization and, you know, heard sounds that confirmed, you know, what I suspected was happening. So I never looked behind me, you know, I was looking forward at the traffic light, but I could see this stuff happening behind me because I had this kind of, extra AI eyes in the back of my head that were assisting me. And that goes for the active safety features too. And even the autopilot uh, we're driving, like regulators have already allowed this to exist. We went to, you know, Chandler and we, we rode in a Waymo. So I think the re- the regulatory thing is often kind of used as like, Oh, but will the regulators allow it? But the fact of the matter is like, the regulatory situation has been pretty good so far. And I think it's, it's just a matter of the capabilities. And in terms of the capabilities, it's an inevitability in my mind that cars are going to be self-driving and that this current software is just going to evolve to be better and better and better. Um, It's just like, you can't cut the perfect build once, you know, you can't just magically put out a piece of software. That's just perfect. It takes a lot of trial and error. You got to put something out, and you got to see like, okay, what is it doing? Is it, what is it doing good? What is it doing bad? And you have to have a process of iteration to arrive at that, at that perfect build. So we're in that process right now. We're churning the data engine 
and we're on the way there. Now, can anyone say for sure what the date is going to be where there will be robo-taxis in any area? No. And people have been wrong guessing again and again, but I've been running this on my car for over a year now, and it's inevitable. Okay, so on this final note, I'm going to thank our guest speaker, James, uh, Emmett, and Warren for their generosity with their time and insights. Really appreciate you guys coming on. Uh, Also thanking Sawyer and Omar. uh, And we're going to be closing out the rooms uh, and putting the, uh, the episode up both on this app and for Android users on our YouTube channel. Uh, This will be done tonight and we'll be putting out highlights uh, tomorrow. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me on.